1: Welcome to the table where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Darrell Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And our topic today is urban ministry and cross cultural ministry. And our expert is Chris Brooks, who's in Michigan by Skype. Uh, Good day, Chris. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing good. I bring you greetings from the beautiful and peaceful city of Detroit, Michigan.
1: Well, that's exciting. We're, we're spanning the country to, to bring you this podcast. So from we're, Dallas to Detroit.
2: Exactly right.
1: right. Yeah, well, you got to begin with D. That's the only thing that counts. Of course, our last names begin with B, so we've got it rhymed and, and rocking and rolling the whole way.
2: Uh, the alliteration is going.
1: Exactly right. Well, Chris, it it really is a pleasure to have you. Uh, you're campus dean at Moody Theological Society. Seminary, Michigan campus. Most people That's think right. Moody is in Chicago, but it has an extension, I take it, in the Detroit area. Is that right?
2: That's right. That's right. One of three extensions that we have around the country. Detroit is where I uh, provide leadership.
1: Okay. And then there's, I guess, is it Seattle is one of the other sites? Am I right about Spokane, that? Spokane, Washington. Spokane, Spokane okay. Washington. Yeah. And then and you say there's three sites. So is Chicago the third, or is there another one besides yep. those Chicago,
2: two? Chicago, Spokane, Detroit.
1: Okay, great. Uh, and, and you're you're a dean, campus dean there, uh, but you also are a host of a radio show called Equipped, which uh, is on the Moody Radio Network, and it airs, uh, is it? Is it, does it air at different times in different parts of the country? Yeah, or?
2: Depending, on, yeah depending on the time zone you're in. So Central Standard Time, uh, which is, uh, again, our headquarters in Chicago, it's noon. It's a drive-time talk show for, for lunchtime on the Moody Radio Network, but we're across markets, so... Uh, folks can check out on our website to see the time in their local area.
1: Okay, and it sounds equipped. Now, the question is equipped for what? What are you equipping me for when I wa- when I listen to this show?
2: Yeah, so broadly, it's a worldview show. We're looking at the intersection of Christ and culture. So we like to say it this way: we're equipping you to live, share, and defend your faith more effectively in culture. So that... apologetics, worldview, uh, all gr- grounded and rooted in a rich theology.
1: That's great. So you're in my business, huh? That's
2: right. That's right. We're we're fighting. We're fighting the good fight together.
1: That's good. Well, uh, you're a terrific ambassador for Christ, and we're really excited to have you with us, Uh, Chris. Talk a little bit about your pastoral experience uh, before we talk about urban ministry a little bit. How did you briefly? Did you grow up in a Christian home, and then and then your your pastoral experience?
2: So I I got it on this, Darrell. I'm a third generation uh, pastor, uh, preacher of the gospel. My grandfather, my father, uh, both uh, here in Michigan, uh, represented Christ well and and, and preached the gospel. And so I I caught the bug pretty early uh, while other folks were uh, pursuing other pursuits. My heart and my passion was to be in my father's library, helping him organize books. But my home has been Detroit, and this is where my heart is. You know, Daryl, uh, there's a lot that can be said about place uh, in in ministry, place in the gospel. I think it's important for us to know our gifts and talents, but it's also really important for us to know where God has called us to serve Him. And so Detroit is my home, married here, born here, uh, lived here, and ministered here. So 1998 is when I made uh, my first step into formal pastoral ministry uh, in this local church here called Detroit. I'm sorry. Uh, called Evangel Ministries in Detroit. Okay, the senior pastor, huh? Since 2004.
1: Okay, well, uh, that's that's uh, quite a track record there. And where exactly do you minister in the Detroit area?
2: We're on the northwest side of Detroit. So if you uh, know our great city, uh, northwest side of Detroit, Grand River Avenue it's one of those historic. Uh, Thoroughfares in Detroit, right uh, about five minutes from downtown. So we like to think we're where the action is happening.
1: Hmm. And and is this now an inner city area of Detroit, or is it, uh, or or has it, is it evolved into, you know, in Dallas, what we've got in some places are places that were historically inner city, but they're also being uh, yeah. significantly renovated at the same time.
2: Yeah. So I'm going to answer you in two ways. Okay. So first off, I'll answer you the way I would if I was talking to you here in Detroit. It's the hood. Okay, right? so, so we're in the hood. Uh, but what you're talking about is what is broadly known as gentrification. Mm-hmm. And so there are areas that have been gentrified in Detroit downtown, what we call Midtown. Uh, there's another section called Tech Town. And, and, and we praise God for those sections of our city. We just did a church plant in Midtown, which is kind of a gentrified cultural epicenter of our city. But no, where we're housed in the northwest section of Detroit, It's it's right in the hood, so we experience all the realities of urban ministry.
1: Oh wow! Now now, how how old is the church itself? Has it been there a while? We
2: we were born in 1967, Mm -hmm. so I'm the second pastor. The first pastor was here for about 36 years, and I took over from there. So my predecessor, uh, George Bogle, uh, did a great job laying the foundation of Christ in this in this church, and, and I've tried to take it further.
1: So the history of the church is rooted really in the just after in the aftermath of of the period of civil rights and that kind of thing yeah. in the country.
2: Well, if you know Detroit history, what marks Detroit more than anything else? 1967 riots. Right. It really becomes the defining uh, image uh, nationally of our city, as well as historically a turning point in our city. Well, our church was founded out of the riots. As a matter of fact, my predecessor was a Caucasian pastor who Came to the city of Detroit from the suburbs, and the first location for our church was a former Black Panthers headquarters. Oh, wow! And that's uh, so a picture that a Caucasian pastor, and a former Black Panther headquarters, uh, loving on the city, building a multicultural church. So, we've been in our DNA, multicultural, multi ethnic, multi racial uh, from the beginning, uh, but as the demographics of the city has changed, it's, it's reflected in the composition of our church as well. But we've never run from these issues. But yeah, we we have a a strong connection to the civil rights movement uh, right here in our church.
1: Well, that's amazing. Okay, well let's 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 talk about that a little bit because obviously the journey of the church is important to understanding the nature of your ministry. Um, uh, you said you started out uh, multicultural. Have you been able to maintain that, or has the demographics of the area impacted uh, the nature of your church?
2: Well, I think, that, I think that a church should always be committed to the demographics of its neighborhood. If you're reaching the people in your community, your congregation should be a reflection of that. So I will say this, that we have maintained that in our leadership. So in our leadership, we've done a good job in maintaining diversity there within our congregation because we're ministering to uh, to this great city. Uh, it's reflected within the demographics of our congregation. So we're about 90% African American, hmm. uh, about 10% others, uh, predominantly white, but we have a Latino, Hispanic within our congregation as well. But I will say because of our reach through media, as you noted, uh, radio, media, we, we reach our region. So that would include a, a strong Middle Eastern uh, uh, demographic here. As you know, That's right. Detroit is... Um, Home to about half a million um, Arab, Arab uh, individuals, as well as uh, black, white, Hispanic, Latino. So, with media, we reach a broad section of our region. But our, our congregation is about ninety percent African American. Okay, so let's
1: talk a little bit about the challenges of of cross cultural ministry, um, and and also at the same time, talk a little bit about the nature of the African American church. Because I suspect for many of our uh, viewers, the the they, they may or may not our listeners may not be familiar with uh, with the makeup of the African American church and the and the peculiarities of it, and and that's an important part of the ministry that you're engaged in. So, so talk a little bit about the African American community that you're a part of, and and the distinctives of the church and what it offers uh, people.
2: You know, it's interesting because I wrote a book called Urban Apologetics where I try to unpack this, Daryl. And one of the things that I would say is that uh, one of the things we have to understand when we're doing ethnic minority ministry is that there's a soulfulness that says. The truth must resonate not only with the head, but with the heart as well, with the soul as well. And so I will say there is this this flavor that comes along with uh, ethnic minority ministry. In the African-American community, also there's this connection, a strong connection to the struggle uh, for personhood, the struggle for being respected uh, as equal humans in our culture, uh, the struggle for uh, justice in so in social structures. And so we, we, we live at that intersection as well. Uh, I, I think when we talk about cross-cultural ministry, though, much of it Daryl boils down to to language. And we have to understand that you, you, you need individuals who can be bilingual ambassadors, individuals who can speak to both groups. Kind of like what C.S Lewis did, living, living uh, in the, in the kind of the Oxbridge world, of Oxford and Cambridge, but also in the Anglican Church, being able to speak both as a churchman and as an academic so that when these groups met finally, they they could kind of hear one another's language. Well, in the same way, I think we need bridge builders who can speak to uh, majority culture as well as be sensitive to the cultural realities of being an ethnic minority. And I think this is the the call that God has given me.
1: Now, it's a real challenge, of course, because uh, a lot of times ethnic minorities are are not either understood or appreciated in some cases, and yeah. so um, so being able to do this well is is uh, really important. I'm going to ask you a question I asked Tony Evans when we had him on, and we were talking about uh, issues related to racial reconciliation. And it's it's a little bit of a challenging question I think to lead off with early on, but but it's an important question and it goes like this: um, What do I as a Caucasian need to hear uh, from you as an African American about life as an African- American? In America, that I might not want to hear?
2: Yeah, I I think it's an honest question. I think it's a really good question. Mm -hmm. And I think what you may not want to hear is that so often the the realities and the struggles of being black in America are very sanitized. Mm -hmm. So if you talk to the average person about the history of racial struggle in America, you'll get something like this that uh, there there was slavery, then Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves. And then there was Jim Crow, but Dr. King came, and he made everything right, and we're doing pretty good now. Mm-hmm. And things were a lot worse than that. When you think about the atrocities of, of, of slavery, when you think about the, uh, the terrors of Jim Crow, uh, the best way for me to describe it is what, do you, what would it be like if, uh, if, if the terrorist group that you had to defend yourself from was your own government? Um, your your own country. And for, for African-Americans, for much of our history in America, for a large portion of our history in America, the group that we would label as, as ISIS, the group that terrorized us oftentimes, had the power to codify uh, this type of discrimination into social structures. Uh, thank God there has been extreme improvement, and I'm a product of that. Uh, being able to sit in leadership roles and positions, but it it has not come without uh, intense struggle. And that's something I often don't hear my white brothers and sisters wanting to engage in. Oftentimes the sense is, can't we just look forward without looking back? And I think it's important for us to be able to look back. And then as we talk about right now, what we have to recognize is whenever the church has been honest about how racism, bias, discrimination has impacted social stru- uh, structures, and we've addressed it, we've done well. We've been able to uh, bring a sense of healthy equality. Uh, but whenever we deny that prejudice, discrimination, uh, racial bias can impact social, stru- uh, sh- uh, social structures, uh, we don't address it, and those uh, structures go unchanged.
1: Yeah, one of the pictures I like to use is is that we're a little slow to recognize uh, structural problems in our society, and we're also a little slow to recognize the shrapnel damage that comes from the past yeah. that you, you, that you still have to pick up and deal with today. Let me give you one example that I think people don't think enough about, and that is one of the natural natural results of slavery and the breakup of uh, of African American family units as they spread across the country was precisely that. They didn't necessarily operate in family units, and yeah. so you had a culture that was – used to functioning in some ways forced to function without family structures so now you have problematic family structures in many communities that is a part of generations of things that have gone on in the past that's that's part of the shrapnel so when you say to to the African American community you know you should you all should be doing better on on family issues and there's an element of course in which that's true but there's also an element in which there's been a huge contribution in which the past has contributed to where we are in the present. Fair?
2: I agree. I agree. And, and, I, and I would also say, you know, Dr. King, his letter from Birmingham jail says this, that it's poor social analysis to look at symptoms without looking at causation. And I think that oftentimes we can look at statistics in the black community and say, man, you guys are doing bad in, in education or in family or marital structure or economically without asking questions of causation and we should ask questions of causation and that will lead us back to better analysis of um, of public policy better analysis of the role of the church more pertinent to our conversation the role of the the church in cities and communities I think that leads to better analysis if we can have honest conversations black and white about the causal factors, and not just brush over those things.
1: Okay, so let let's talk a little bit about what it means to be a church located uh, in the hood, as you like, as you yeah. noted. And what are the what? Are, let me ask it the question this way: What are the challenges that are special to a church in your context? That again, someone who might be used to a primarily Anglo experience in the church might not appreciate. Uh, you have to deal with on a regular basis.
2: Yeah, I, I, I guess the best way for me to describe it Daryl because it, it, it's almost easier to say the opposite you know what what's common mm-hmm. uh, because the things that are that are different and unique are so um, such a long list. but let me just say that uh, imagine working with an individual who has PTSD right because they have experienced tremendous trauma uh, from um, from a horrific experience in their life. Now, multiply the challenges of that abro- uh, across a community, uh, not only an entire neighborhood, but an entire section of a city. Uh, the reality is, is that the average person in my community has experienced tremendous trauma, and we can get into a long list of the reasons why, but you have to build within that individual hope. You have to bring mental and emotional stability uh, before you can get into the work of um uh, some of the uh, some of the niceties of of, of of theological training programs and and uh, some of the other uh, Christian educational things that we would love to do we have to start with the individual being restored uh, through Christ and uh, in in the in the inner man uh, with this whole redemptive work and then being built up emotional, uh, emotionally, psychologically, and, and in a lot of ways, the the economic realities of poverty and what that brings when you live in, in poverty all around you on a daily basis, when you're walking by dilapidated buildings, overgrown fields, when crime is your reality. These are, are challenges that are presented to the urban minister that I believe are unique.
1: Okay, so let me just uh, clear up one uh, abbreviation that you use so people get it. And I'm guessing, but PTSD, I take it as post-traumatic syndrome disorder. Or did I get syndrome. that right? Yeah. Yep, yep. Okay. Right. Yep, so, yep. so the point is, people are living with uh, in a context in which they are operating out of out of out of shock in a variety of ways in terms of the way their life functions, and so I imagine building trust. Is one of the first, almost starting points in trying to minister to people, get them to the point where they don't look at you for okay, are you after me for how you can use or abuse me versus really relating to me as an individual.
2: Yeah, and identifying with the struggle, just Mm -hmm. being able to be sensitive and identify with the fact uh, that they are living in in a in a desert. You know, we call. Uh, uh, these cities that are under-resourced, urban deserts, right? Where you might find that there's a lack of employment opportunities, healthcare opportunities, even uh, fresh food opportunities. And so, we have to be able to uh, identify with what is it like to wake up in that reality each and every day. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and how do we minister to this individual a gospel that is holistic? That is not just theoretical in nature, but also deals with the practical realities of of, of image bearing and Christ's ministry to the spiritual as well as the physical parts of person.
1: Now, now I'm listening to you, and I'm sure there are people listening to you, and they go, "Okay." Um, now, how theologically conservative are you? And you're pretty theologically conservative. So, th- so know. you're trying to communicate really a balance about something that yeah. some people don't think initially might not go together. And yet, and yet, what I'm hearing you say is, if you care deeply about the person made in the image of God, who is your neighbor, then these kinds of questions will be questions you'll wrestle with.
2: Yeah, I, I think so, and I think that for a long time, Daryl, the church wrestled with. Whether or not social concern uh, and ministering to the physical person, the, the physical nature of a person, is in violation to the gospel. And I, and I don't think it is in violation to the gospel. We have plenty of examples of that Matthew 25, um, Luke chapter 4. And we can go deeper into a scriptural analysis of this. But what I am saying is that we don't need to compromise the truths of the gospel, the teachings of Christ, while at the same time acknowledging the fact that. This person needs employment. Uh, mm-hmm. This person needs food. Uh, this person needs to be able to to be affirmed in their in again in their personhood.
1: Well, obviously, then you're you're trying to build a community that has this interesting array of values. This this you know primary commitment to the gospel on the one hand, and yet a recognition that yes. that we're really in a work of, of community restoration in some ways.
2: Yeah, we are. We are. And and, and we're in a work, uh, ultimately, of, of the re- being a part of the redemptive work of Christ in the lives of individuals. And we do have to ask ourselves, how is that contextualized? Mm-hmm. So part of this conversation that you and I are having is a, is a question of contextualization. So if I'm going to reach this individual in Detroit or, or the south side of Chicago, let's take that, for example. That's been in the news for, for a while now. Imagine what it's like to have sixty to seventy shootings over a weekend, uh, and that's and that's normal, right? To be mm-hmm. in a community where the people are literally calling for the national guard to come in to to stop the the violence. Uh, th- this is a uh, this is a context in which you have to, again, identify with the individuals that you are presenting the gospel to.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson. Publisher of Nine Lives and Counting A Bounty Hunter's Journey to Faith, Hope, and Redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well known life events, but also ventures into behind the scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com slash audio to learn more.
1: Chris, let me ask you this question. You know, you've grown up in a, in a, in a solid home. You said you've had three generations of preachers in your, in your home. You obviously have been uh, well-educated. You had the opportunity to probably minister anywhere of choice, and yet you've ended up deciding to minister in the hood. Why did, why did you make that choice?
2: Well, there's a lot of ways I can answer that. Obviously, it's discerning what what not only Christ has called me to do, but where He, I, I sense, has called, called me to do it. But I will also say, Daryl, that one of my deep convictions, biblical convictions, is that we who preach the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ have to demonstrate that it is effective in every zip code, in every city, that a person shouldn't have to relocate to a nicer neighborhood or a nicer community in order to flourish in Christ. And that's the joy I have about doing ministry in Detroit. I will also say this, Darrell, I don't sense at all that I've given more to the city than the city has given to me. Uh, I'm very much a product of the city, and I will say that uh, the city has shaped me in ways it has helped me to understand what the gospel looks like lived out in ways that are innumerable, immeasurable, and that I'm eternally grateful for. So doing ministry in an urban setting is so rewarding uh, that I I feel like an unofficial PR rep that we should be running into these communities and not running away from them.
1: That's interesting. Now let's talk about how how the church is able to walk into this space and minister. Obviously, the gospel is important because it changes hearts. It does what I like yeah. to call radical heart transplant surgery, working from the inside out. And so that's an important uh, starting point. I would also think that that the ability of the church to show that heart. To reflect yes. that heart is a very important part of, of how ministry gets done. Fair?
2: Yeah, I, I think it's fair. And I think it's important, Daryl, for us to make this distinction because we don't want to confuse what we're saying with the social gospel, which is very different. Listen, the, the gospel is not ultimately the redemption of social structures. It is the, uh, the transformation uh, and the regeneration of the human heart, the awakening of the human heart to Christ, right? Mm-hmm. So the message that we preach, the primary message we preach is the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ and the implications of that. But we have to understand that the primary ethic of the church, though, is love. This is the primary ethic of the church. And so where we can uh, live out our faith, in in love that is tangible, love being a verb, an action word, uh, we should do that. We should search for communities where the love of Jesus Christ and the reality of the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ are, are not being seen, and we should bury ourselves in these communities and work until Christ returns.
1: Yeah, there's a passage that I really love to talk about that that I think shows this pretty powerfully because I think the whole discussion about the social gospel has kind of co opted the integration of, of faith and life that the scripture calls us to. Yeah. And that passage is a, is a unique passage to Luke. It's in Luke chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. It's when John the Baptist is being asked, in effect, what does repentance look like? Like. And he's just given the exhortation, you know, to make fruit worthy of repentance. If you if you look at that in the Greek, the ver- verb, the Greek verb is the Greek verb poieo, and when you and the crowd responds by asking, "What shall we do?" using the same verb, it doesn't work in English because we say "make fruit worthy of repentance," but then when we ask, "What shall we do?" you can't tell it's the same verb. But in Greek, it's the same verb. Mm. And if you think about repentance, you think about normally you'd say well, what relationship am I talking about when I think about repenting? Well, you would say, I'm thinking about my relationship to God. I'm thinking about how I walk with God. But in every one of the answers that John the Baptist gives, repentance expresses itself in how I treat my neighbor in that's one right. way or another you know okay. I, I give him the clothes off my back i don't abuse him those those are the responses and there's nothing directly about your relationship to god and in that answer is actually a pretty profound point which is that if i'm relating properly to god and thinking about my relationship to him then i'm also thinking about how i'm relating to others who are made in his image that's right and in that's the right. and in the midst of that then i free myself up to really Live in a powerful way that thinks about how I'm interacting with my neighbor. And I think that's the core ethic of the New Testament. And the spirit in the person is designed to move them in that direction so that they care about people, whether they're in the community or not in the community, by which I mean the church community. And so. Uh, I'm assuming that that's what you see. If that's right.
2: That's right. And I think a, a lot of this falls up under the concept of common grace, right? Mm-hmm. This sense that, that that the Lord is good to to all, and that the uh, the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. And we have to understand that the definition of success. I used to be a pulpit sniper, Daryl, so kind of measuring success by the blood on my sword, if you will. Uh-huh. I'm an apologist, and so. Uh, this sense that my neighbor who who believes or lives differently than me or is a non christian you know that i the way I'll measure success is by how many of them I can defeat and conquer uh intellectually, but you know that's not what the gospel compels us to do. It compels us to be able to leverage our influence, to be able to win them, to woo them uh, to Christ. And so, being able to to live out in a pluralistic society uh, that is broken and falling, the love of Christ and the truth of Christ is our is our missional mandate. And to contextualize that is what uh, this show is all about. And and to be able to live it out effectively requires wisdom, and it requires a lot of conversation and communication. Now let me just say this, Daryl, too, that I don't want people to feel like, hey, I wasn't born or raised in that neighborhood uh, or in that type of city or setting, so that means I don't have anything to offer. Uh, here's the thing, the great equalizer is the truth of the gospel. It is the, uh, it, it is the message of Christ, and it is the recognition that we can improve schools, we can improve the job market we can improve the economy to bring the best of capitalism and free market economic thinking has to has to bring to a city but unless we see internal transformation the heart being transformed uh, there will not be any uh, sustainable change.
1: Yeah, the way I like to say that is, is if you want to know what good laws look like without changed hearts, read your Old Testament. That's why we got a new covenant. That's right. <laughs> and So, uh, that's right. that's you know, right. that's the boil down on that one. And so uh, let, me, let me read this passage to you because I, I, I always think this is striking. This is this passage from Luke 3. It says, So the crowds were asking him, what should we do? John answered them, The person who has two tunics must share with the person who has none. The person who has food must do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what should we do? He told them, collect no more than you're required to. Then some soldiers also asked him, and as for us, what should we do? He told them, take money from no one by violence or by false accusation and be content with your pay. And what's really interesting about this passage is you see a a willingness to be generous, you see a hesitation to take advantage of someone because they're in a vulnerable position position and you also see a uh, care to exercise one's power and authority by not overstepping that power and authority and trying to be sensitive to the people uh, whom whom you are who you're supposed to soldier if I can say it that way. Right. Uh, sure. Those are very relevant words I think to uh, the situations often we find ourselves in in the inner city.
2: I think so and I would also say I, I think it's worth noting that what he does not do, is, uh, is make the mistake that liberation gospel makes in creating oppressor and oppressed groups. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is, that is the freshness, the uniqueness of Scripture, is that it's able to talk about the, the sin of an individual heart without losing sight of the need for the individual to repent of their sins. And understanding that salvation is a very personal thing. Uh, the mistake of the social gospel, or by extension the liberation gospel, is that you have oppressor and oppressed groups and that uh, your, your salvation or redemption uh, comes in being a part of the group that is uh, oppressed, and your eternal damnation is being a part of the group that is oppressor, as if these are kind of uh, eternal categories in which you cannot be changed. Uh, what the Scripture teaches us is that no matter what group we're a part of, uh, we're all sinners, and this is equality, biblical equality, is that we're all sinners in need of His grace, and that this salvation is is offered to all.
1: Yeah, and I think the other thing that get that gets lost in the in the more social gospel or liberation approaches is that it almost creates how do I say this uh, a Teflon coating on someone in which it says I bear no responsibility for what's That's taken right. place.
2: Yeah, cause, yeah, because the the need for salvation is is of social structures only and not of the individual heart.
1: That's right. That's
2: Why we have to preach repentance to the individual. That individuals must repent and turn to God. And let me just tell you that message works No matter where you preach
1: it. Yeah, now I can imagine that. So let's talk about how your church tackles this. Uh, What do you, what do you, uh, obviously it's clear you're presenting a gospel message, but I imagine there are ways in which you structure the church to try and be of help to people who come out of very broken backgrounds, uh, whether we think about their access to education or the brokenness of their families. I mean, I know that one of the large, important statistics that is a part of that. African American reality is how few solid homes there are where there's a father and a mother that a lot of kids uh, grow up in some cases in some cases not even knowing either parent much less uh, one of them.
2: Yeah. So there's a, there's there's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of hope as well. But let me let me just say this, Daryl, that I think is so important is that you asked me earlier what's unique about urban ministry, the church in, in a city like my own. One of the areas of uniqueness is that the church can't just be uh, uh, the church, if, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. We have to be a place where people can turn to for everything. The church historically in the black community has been the epicenter of the city. So it's a place where people turn to for legal advice. It's a place where people turn to for food. It's a place that people re- re- uh, refer to for for health, uh, medical attention, so much more. So when you're building a ministry, if you're going to be serving in an urban area, you better structure it in such a way, either through a CDC, community development corporation, or under the umbrella of the outreach of the church. You better have services that can minister. To the whole man. That it's a it's so a
1: market crazy. it's a marketplace as opposed to just a place to gather to sing hymns and hear a sermon.
2: That's right. That's right. And so we need to be sensitive to that. While we're preaching, there has to be a place where people can turn to to apply that and to receive help with not only their soul, but again, getting access to a job, being able to uh, get marriage counseling, being able to uh, get transportation needs met housing needs met, all of these things are very critical and, uh, and very important to a successful urban ministry. Now,
1: is there any partnershiping that you do with other churches in the area? And I'll tell you what, what motivates this question. Uh, there's a very successful church that was planted in the 1970s here in Dallas, right in the poorest part of Dallas. It was a very uh, African-American community in terrific need, high crime rate. Uh, extreme poverty, all those kinds of things, and there were several Anglo churches that came in alongside the African American church to actually help help get it started and kind of get it off the ground. The church is now very much self sustaining. They built a, the first thing they did after they built a church was they built a gym. To, yeah. to, to become a, com- right, a community right. place, yeah. yes. to, yeah. to alter the way kids would spend their time, and then they built a school and, and went in yeah. that order, which was interesting. Um, and, and so uh, I'm not necessarily asking just about your church, but how much cross-cultural, can I say, um, support is there for uh, what goes on in Detroit?
2: Well, it needs to be. And and let me just say the the last several years, since two thousand eleven, Detroit has seen an amazing amount of partnershipping. There was a a broad evangelistic campaign that brought together five hundred and fifty churches, urban and suburban, black, white, again, Asian, Latino. And there's been more partnership in, in our history over the past five years uh than, than maybe any other period in time. So I'm really excited about that. But I will say, Daryl, that one of the major keys to healthy partnering, is that it has to be mutual. Right. Uh, the, the, the Anglo church has to be able to know there's so much benefit and richness and wisdom I can get from my African American brothers and sisters in Christ, and the African American church can't see itself only as a recipient. Right. It has to see itself as a giver as well. So I think that we have to partner we need to do it in healthy ways. Yeah, it can't
1: be patronizing, is what you're saying, and and exactly. yeah, or
2: parental, or parental.
1: That's right.
2: And, and and the other thing that I will say is this: is that so often uh, my Anglo brothers and sisters uh, will be very committed to global missions uh, and romanticize reaching groups overseas. And very closed off to reaching those who are in need 15, 20 miles from them up the street.
1: Yeah, we've talked about this in our own churches here, in the uh, the churches that I've been in that are in suburban churches, you know, that that we'll, we'll fly a plane to go into missions, but we won't cross the railroad tracks.
2: And I think that's critical. I think that's critical. We need to be able to say, how much are we supporting local missions outreach? As well as global, Uh, I believe that all churches, regardless of ethnic background, need to be a part of God's global Great Commission. And where I encourage and challenge African American or ethnic minority churches is that we need to get into the global mission field. This is a unique period in time where we can, and our voices are are they're hungry for our voices, and our voices are needed. But I also challenge. Suburban churches to say get more involved in local missions as much as possible.
1: Now we've talked a little bit. Uh, I've mentioned partnerships, and I got distracted from where I was going originally, and I want to come back to it. And that is, um, let's talk about the variety of services that a, that a church uh, offers. You've, you talked a little bit about everything from employment to transportation. I imagine yeah. food is in that mix too. Uh, what 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 goes in? What goes into the internal ministries of the church to minister to the to the whole of the yeah. community.
2: Let me Let me just say, Darrell, if I could just simplify, there are three E's that every church needs to focus in on if they really want to have impact. And I will say it this way, education, employment, and entrepreneurship. Those three E's are critical and important. Education, employment, and entrepreneurship. I will also say there's a fourth E that doesn't necessarily move people along the developmental role, but is critical, and that's emergency assistance. Hmm. So we like to category, categorize our uh, practical ministries in those areas. Can we offer educational opportunities, employment opportunities, entrepreneurial opportunities, but also recognizing there are times when we need to be there for emergency assistance for the person who's homeless, for the person who's hungry, for the person that is in need.
1: Wow. Well, and I have to say that doesn't sound like my church. <laughs> uh right. that's very very different, much more in some ways much more demanding on the community.
2: Yeah, there is a there's a sense of a uh, compassion fatigue as well. As you pray for those who minister in urban areas, pray for their emotional strain, pray uh for their their stress levels because they're as you know, when you're in a, in a war zone, when you're in uh, a, a place of constant need, struggle, uh, again, uh, challenge, uh, there, there can, it can be emotionally draining. But again, it's tremendously encouraging as well as you see all the wonderful things of Christ's redemptive work and, and people having strong marriages and young people finding purpose and calling in Christ, men awakening to what it means to not just be a man but a man of God. All these things are present as well and I want to talk about great fathers wonderful marriages and healthy churches because it's, it's a sad thing if we think that there's only negative things happening in the hood. There's great things as well.
1: Yeah, I, I'm again. I'm going back to this West Dallas story. But about ten years in, the Dallas Morning News wrote an editorial entitled "Angels in Our Midst," and yeah. the point was here was a church planted in the poorest part of the city with citywide cooperation that had produced a, a neighborhood turnaround in the area of racial relations when everything else around Dallas was kind of under racial tension and the question was asked what is it that these people are bringing to the table and part of the conversation that seems to be lacking in so much else that's happening in the city when it comes to these areas and of course the answer was it was their, it was their Christian commitment and their right. religious commitment that brought the change and and you know the the Dallas Morning News isn't exactly a church newsletter so <laughs> uh, uh, so it was a pretty powerful testimony about what's possible when kind of all all the pieces come together and, and people make an effort, a concerted effort to cooperate, it shows that it is possible and that turnaround can happen.
2: Yeah, it can, and it does. And again, Christ being at the center, it does happen. And let me also say this, Daryl, that we have to look at those individuals that are living in those hard hit communities as individuals that, if in power, can lead themselves into Uh, a sense of transformation as well all the help doesn't have to come from external leadership but it can be a, a rich partnership to make that come about.
1: Well, the beautiful thing, at least about the West Dallas story was, again, about 10, 15 years in, things had gotten to the point where the church was very much self-sustaining. Yes. People were coming, people who had been educated at the school had made the decision, many of them, to come back and teach at the school and impact the community that they had come out of rather than fleeing it. And in the meantime, that part of the city has has literally been transformed. By what took place?
2: Yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. When we look for these partnerships, Daryl, uh, let me just say we don't have to compromise the, the 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 tenets of our faith and the gospel to find these partnerships. I think so often we can go to the other extreme where there's this overwhelming sense of compassion, and we say, "Well, let me just connect with anybody." Well, no, we can do harm that way. We need to connect with people who are going to lift the name of Christ high, and connect with people who are good models a faithful Bible ministry. And if we find those people who can also effectively serve their community, I think that's a great healthy partnership.
1: Well, uh, we got about two and a half minutes left here, Chris. Uh, Let me let me ask you kind of one other question, and that is, um, what do you do specifically for for uh, families to help ground them in the hopes that the next generation won't be quite like the last generation?
2: I love the question, and I think the family is so critical to the Great Commission, Global Great Great Commission. When we think about the Great Commission, we we got two pedals on this bike, right? Mm-hmm. On one pedal is sending missionaries local, global, outreaches. The other pedal is the family. So we have to teach three principles. Get married, marriage for a lifetime, and also raise your children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. If We teach those three things. We celebrate marriage. Church can't just be known for what it's against, but we have to also celebrate the beauty of marriage, then marriage for a lifetime, be faithful in marriage, And then raise children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. This is the way we transform communities, one family at a time.
1: And and I didn't ask you; I probably shouldn't have, but I'm curious now. Um, How large is the church that you're a part of?
2: Sixteen hundred members. That's great. Sixteen hundred members.
1: Yeah. Well. Chris, it's it's been a real pleasure to have you with us to talk about. I, I, I we always say this on the table when we d- dive into a topic, kind of for the first time. We've only scratched the surface of yes. the conversation. Yes. Uh, yes. And we've 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 touched on a lot of things, each of which could probably be their own uh, podcast and focus. But I really do appreciate several things. One, your commitment to the to the hood. Your commitment to to really minister in the context in which you grew up, secondly, the clarity with which you encouraged us to think about what life in the hood can be like and what the demands on a church are, and third, the clarity with which you have expressed how the gospel speaks into that so effectively that it is actually the answer to the question, if we're looking for a program that's going to change people and change the world, that program is primarily the gospel and not something. Else.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. The Christian worldview is the answer for the hood.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks again, Chris. We appreciate you being with us and we thank you for joining us on the table and look forward to having you back with us again.
2: Thanks, all
0: Thanks for listening to the Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit DTS.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary, teach truth, love well. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.